Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Spirit of the Humble. In this message, we go back close to 20 years into Eric's past and, in a sense, relive a powerful revival message he gave as a young man. Like always, the truth of God's Word does not wear out, run down, lose its edge, or diminish in its power. Listen with a soft and pliable heart, ready to obey the Spirit of God. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So at noon on Saturday, I have the sense, and it's a very sharp, keen sense in my soul that I don't actually know what I'm speaking on today. And it's not for lack of study, for lack of preparation, for lack of prayer. In fact, at 12 o'clock yesterday, I felt very sharp spiritually. So it wasn't a dullness. It was actually the sense that God is doing something this morning that's maybe a little outside the box for Eric Ludy. And I thought I'd already gotten outside the box and I wasn't hanging out in one, but uh, just hang out with God a little longer and you begin to realize that we still have our ways of doing things that bring comfort and stability to us. And God sometimes puts his finger on those things and says, are you willing? Sure, absolutely, God. You know what you're doing here. Are you in control? Because don't set me off, uh, you know, just to be a fool for no reason. So yesterday afternoon, I basically, I, at every moment I was expecting God to bring clarity. I spent the whole time, I mean, I was, um, had, had my Bible, I had my computer, and I was in typical preparation mode. But I had no concrete thought to begin to reason from, which is what I always do. God gives me a burden. And then I reason from that burden in and through the scriptures, and that's where my messages are coming from. So every week, typically on a Monday, I have no idea what my message is going to be the next Sunday. I get people ask me, it's like, how do you come up with your sermon topics? Well, I'd like to just, it's going to sound super spiritual, but I'd like to say God gives me my sermon topics. In other words, it's something that he's working in me. And then I, my confidence is that if he's bringing you here, which is his business, by the way, I didn't force any of you to be here. If he's bringing you here, then that which he's working in me is for the edification of you as well, not just for me. And so that's what you see is this flow-through channel. And so here I am yesterday afternoon, and I spent, I think it's around five hours yesterday, praying. Just yesterday afternoon, after getting back from a whole trip, praying for this message. And after five hours, guess what Eric had? Nothing. (laughs) This is completely unprecedented in my preparation for any message. Uh, And... However, what I sensed was that God was preparing the vehicle and not the message. The message needs to come through the vehicle, and there was something important that God is going to be doing this semester that God had to prepare me for yesterday. One of the first things that I was starting to get the hunch about was that, okay, God, am I going to just walk up there tomorrow without a message, and you're going to say, do you trust that I'll give you the message then? And what my answer was was yes. I trust that you will give me the message then. If you desire me to do that, the answer is a predecided yes, Lord. If I look like a fool in front of the newly arriving students, you know, people have a lot of funny opinions of Ellerslie. Usually they haven't been here. And they're like, throw out these accusations about us. Well, the last thing Eric wants to do is feed any of those. <laughs> and so what goes through my mind is, all right, I'm willing to be the fool, but God, you have to be the one that protects the reputation. 
Okay, because fools, you know, they don't always come across very well. Now it's fools, when we're fools for Christ, we're fools oftentimes in the world's mentality, those that are not awakened by the Spirit of God. But those awakened by the Spirit of God do not see it as foolish. In fact, we highly regard those of us that are twice born. That'll become a term that you'll become familiar with, twice born. Those of us that are twice born greatly esteem faith. We esteem boldness for the purposes of the kingdom. We esteem obedience because we know how hard it is. There's nothing natural in us that seeks after Jesus Christ. There's nothing natural in us that's going to risk everything for an event and for a man that took place 2,000 years ago. There isn't anything natural in us, but something supernatural is deposited into us, and suddenly we live different than this world around us. We care about things the rest of the world doesn't care about. And we will do things, even though we be mocked when we do them, and we will shrug our shoulders and say, but this is for you, Lord Jesus. And for some strange reason, we find great pleasure in it. Christianity. All right. Very unusual message that came out of those five hours. In ten minutes, I had a message. This is possibly the shortest message as far as notes, if any of you have ever followed any of my sermons. Uh, I've had pastors say that I cheat. They're like, what do you mean I cheat? I could never speak for an hour and a half and have my audience return the next week. Okay, I cheat. We have students that come here that want to hear. They're not just looking, you know, how they can get out and see the football game. The people that are coming to Ellerslie are serious about Jesus Christ doesn't mean you don't care about the football game. You still might have it in the back of your mind, but you're willing to forgo it for something better. If you're interested in something better, let's go after it together. Because Jesus specializes in giving us, truly, all that is needful for our souls to thrive, to dance, to leap, to shout. Let's start with prayer. Father, Consecrate this time, and if you want to even throw out the little bitty notes that I do have, that's your business. This time is yours. It is sacred. It is marked off for the king, belonging to the king. And whatever you desire to do in this sacred time, I ask that you would move by the power of your grace, the power of your spirit, to accomplish it. And may we, the saints of God, stand back in awe and wonder as you do your work. With great expectancy, we ask this. Amen. I have a title for this. We're going to call it The Spirit of the Humble. There's a verse in Isaiah that this is referencing, which I will read in just a bit. To give you a little framework or background of this particular message... Leslie walked into the kitchen last night, and she said, still nothing? For some reason, I don't have something. I said, I have loads of ideas. I mean, if I were to list out some of the ideas, you'd get mad that I didn't choose them. It's like, what? Oh, that would have been a great one. Yeah, I have some great ideas, but they weren't God's idea for this morning. And I, it's hard to explain to you how I know what God's idea is for the morning. There's a burden that comes with it. There's a unction. There's a movement of grace within me that sort of seals it. 
that says yes to it. I can't explain it, but I've been doing this for years, and so I recognize it. Sort of like some people come out and go, it's going to rain. I go, how do you know that? You just feel it in your bones. That's the way I am with messages, okay? It's like, that, and that's my job here at Ellerslie. I need to be sensitive to what God is doing. I'm not God, but I need to be sensitive to what he's wanting to do because he utilizes human bodies, He needs bodies that are yielded and willing to obey, to participate in his work. That's how he works. The Spirit of God had an agenda down here. And what did he need? A body. The body of a man. So Jesus Christ took on the body of a man to facilitate the work of grace here on earth. That's exactly what he's doing in us. He's looking for bodies that are willing to yield and say, God, use me. So Leslie comes in. And she asked that question, and I have nothing. And I'm just sort of thinking, this is bizarre. And she asked me one question about a message that I gave years ago. And she asked about that, and I said, where? Huh. And I began to just sort of lay that before God. And so in 10 minutes, this, this came together. This is a message that I gave in Australia, I want to say... 17 years ago, and I, wa- I came into this church, and it was sort of a mega church Australia style, which back then was a little smaller than, because they actually do have some big churches now, but back then a mega church was, you know, 500 people, and because, I mean, 2% Christian in the country, and they had had a revival, I'm putting quotes around this, a revival sweep through uh, the church. It was somewhat of a <clears throat> strange revival. And I was showing up at this exact time. I remember sort of looking heavenward because I would have been 17 years younger. So, you know, somewhere around 24 years old. And I wasn't too excited about being here, to be honest. Uh, the revival that was taking place was, was not a revival as classified typically in historic Christianity. Because I'd studied revivals even up to that point. There was no brokenness. There was no repentance. No contrition over sin. No confession of sin. Repentance was like lifted out of this quote-unquote revival. It was like this emotional thing where everyone was laughing all the time, rolling around on the floor laughing. There was some barking going on, I think, too. And so I am coming in, and I'm very opposite of whatever this disposition is. For me, honor is the evidence of the Spirit of God. He's orderly, and he's a gentleman. And so the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God moves, yes, the Spirit of God may ask us to be idiots. That's true. But he's, we're idiots for the glory of God. And there's a difference between being an idiot to declare the idiocy of men and for the glory of God. In other words, Paul was deemed an idiot, but everything he was doing was for the glory of God. So I was really struggling. I remember this pastor sitting down with me and saying, look, the last, I don't remember what it was, Leslie would remember the exact numbers, it was something like the last 17 or 27, I think it had a 7 at the end of it, the last 17 or 27 people that have spoken in this pulpit, revival has broken out. Of course, they were defining revival a little differently than I would define revival. Weirdness has broken out, would have been a better way uh, to describe it to me. And I'm the 18th or the 28th, whatever number it was. And so, basically, the inference was, don't let us down. Oh, this was one of the greatest tests of my masculinity and my spiritual life that I've ever gone through up to that point. Because I had to make a choice. Am I trying to appease 
this, this system, whatever I'm walking into, or am I willing to bring the word of God to bear as a 24-year-old in a foreign country? Oh, this was a painful thing that I was walking through. Out of it came this message. Later, uh, well, by the way, I don't know that I want to tell you what happened, okay? I might save that for later. Uh, I could say something like, oh, you have to go through Ellerslie to find out. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will try and fill in the gaps of, of the remainder of the story. Uh, I don't know, it was maybe even later that week, I was at a Christian school, and we were supposed to be doing a promo for our event. We were going to be doing an event at some other uh, location, and so we had this Christian school that was bringing us in, and we were going to speak for a half hour. So I had a half hour promo that I was going to do. By the way, I don't like promos, but uh, I was supposed to give one. And so we're in this, and everyone's dressed up, you know, because the schools in Australia, uh, they, you know, they, they really dress their students well, and the rebellion is taking, you know, your shirt out of uh, your pants and letting it flop like that. That's like the rebellious uh, thing to do. So there were a little of that. And so... Uh, so I needed to get up. I remember sitting in the front, and the uh, principal was right next to me, and Leslie was over here, and I'm just about to get up, and I feel a, a, that pressure upon my soul, like God is asking of me something, and he wanted me to change my message and to give something different, and I knew exactly what that something different was, and I was wrestling. I didn't want to give this something different. I didn't even know who these people were. The principal isn't expecting this. He's expecting a promo. What, I, I can't do that. But then I turned heavenward, and I basically said, yes. And I turned to Leslie right as they're calling me up, and uh, we're going to have uh, Eric Ludi come up and share with us. I turned to Leslie, I said, uh, I'm changing my message. She goes, no. <laughs> and I'm like walking up as I'm doing it. <laughs> I start talking. The principal falls asleep. I'm dead serious. The principal fell asleep at about the 30-second point. There's spit wads being... Th- Thrown or spit, I guess it's spit, you spit them, right? Uh, and some, I think something was thrown as well. But uh, that's happening in like row two. You got, you know, the guys in row two laughing about something, you know, about me. You know, whether it's my shoes, whether it's my teeth, I don't know what it was. But there was something that they were making fun of. It looks bad, okay? Things aren't going well for poor Eric Ludy up there, 24 years old. And I'm not on the reservation all of a sudden. I've gone off the reservation. Eric's like skidding out of control in a foreign country, and Leslie, his wife, my lone supporters, chewing her fingernails. <laughs> and I gave this message. A few hours later, after lunch had been skipped and the students were weeping, they did a long line there, and they were coming up and grabbing the microphone and confessing, cheating. Stealing, being rude to their other classmates. It was the most amazing thing I had ever seen, which is, by the way, not to steal the thunder of the previous story, it's exactly what happened in the other church. But I never even met anyone. I didn't talk with anyone the whole time. I just got up, did this, sat down, and then we had to leave. We had an event we had to get to. So I was out at the car, and this one person, I don't remember if it was a man or a woman, came running up to the car, banged on the window. We rolled down the window. They said, I don't know who you are, but we've been praying. There's a group of us that have been praying for, I don't know, five to ten years for this. Uh, thank you. 
This whatever, this message, there's nothing special about it. I just have a history with it. And so late last night, this is what God burdened me with. I've never shared it here at Ellerslie. Isn't that bizarre? Never shared this at Ellerslie. And today's the day, unless God decides to intervene and give me a new message. Wouldn't that be hilarious? That'll be a test for you guys. It's like, that would be funny. I should try that. Uh, The spirit of the humble. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. And save such as have a contrite spirit. When we allow the grace of God to begin to work upon our souls, and we become malleable. See, there's two ways of approaching God. One is, you basically cross your arms across your chest, and you say, God, show me things in my life. Take out of my life anything you want to take. However, what is the actual disposition of our being? We're closed. We're saying the right things, We're checking off the, you know, to be accurate in our spiritual life. Oh, I'm open to God. No, you're not. And only you know that you're not. Of course, God knows too. But you can give the air to those around you that you're actually open and searchable and inspectable by the Spirit of God. However, you're actually not. You want life on your terms. You want God to do things your way. You want to be spiritual. You really do. And you want him to get that junk out of your life. But you're scared about what that means. Well, welcome to humanity. You're not the only one that feels that. Do we trust our God to be a surgeon in our soul? What are you going to do? That's been there a long time, God. Is that going to hurt when you take it out? What if it does? You see, we oftentimes judge if we're willing to open up to God by the fact that it may hurt to have something removed and we fail to realize that it's in our best interest, no matter if it's painful or not, to have that which is hindering us in our pursuit of intimacy with Jesus to be removed from our life. What I want to challenge you to do is remove your arms from in front of your chest today, or in front of your heart, and I want you to spread them I want you to open yourself up and say, God, I know this little unknown territory for me. My knees are knocking right now. But I know you need to have access into my life. So even if it takes the crane, the machinery of God's very spirit to pull your arms, I want you to even ask God, please, put me into crucifixion position. Put me into the position where I can receive, where you can take, as opposed to me fighting this and fighting this and fighting this. That's what a humble spirit is. That's what a contrite spirit is. That's what a broken spirit is. The story of Jennifer. God took me through a season. I had left college. My life had gone weird. I know we've used the word weird in multiple contexts now. Uh, Mine wasn't as weird uh, as what I was seeing in Australia, but it was weird to the world, okay? And where I was doing well in college, and I literally walked away from it. And I went on the mission field, and I was just doing things that didn't make sense to any of my friends, my extended family. They had no grid for 
comprehending what was going on in Eric Ludi's life. Eric had such potential. We had such high hopes for Eric. That's what all those lines begin to come out. And, you know, I didn't like hearing it because I wanted to please people. I wanted to have people applaud my life. This was a tension of soul that I was going through. One of the things that I walked through was the realization that I had functioned as a Christian for years of my life, but had never truly been a Christian. I'd always functioned under the banner of Christianity, and I had perpetrated acts under the banner of Christianity that were horrifying. And so I remember one day setting the entire day aside just to be in the presence of God and have him search me. It took me quite a while to get to this day. But to literally, I had pieces of paper in front of me. It was like a notebook in front of me and a pen. It's like, God, if there's anything I need to make right, if there's anything you need to search, I'm just waiting. Because I wanted all impediments, all weights that were besetting me to be brought out. You know that I did, I want to say a front and a back, and I write small, of an entire sheet of paper. And the list, just looking over that list was like crushing my heart. There were girls that I had defrauded, that I had hurt. And I remember just thinking, what do I do to make this right? And I just wanted the list to go away. In heaven, the list was dealt with. That's what was interesting. I knew the power of the blood of Jesus. And I knew these things weren't being held against me in the heavenly sense. But they were things that I had misrepresented in the earthly sense. That I had shown a disregard or a disrespect. If I stepped on your toe, and maybe I didn't even, I did it accidentally. You know that I still stepped on your toe? And if I find out that I stepped on your toe, what should I do about it? I should make it right with you. and say, you know, I'm really sorry I stepped on your toes. It was a complete accident. And of course, you'd be gracious and say, that's all right. However, some of us have stepped on toes, but we've been unwilling to make it right because, hey, I didn't do it on purpose. They should know that. But in the process, we've shown a disregard and a dishonor and a disrespect, and we've actually stumbled people in our life. Well, I'm looking at a page, you know, front and back of this sort of thing. I had cheated in school. Now you can know sort of why some of these students were coming up and uh, confessing that. I had shown disrespect to my parents and I'd done things behind my parents' back. And these are coming back to me years later. And I'm thinking, oh, come on, that doesn't matter. That makes no difference. Well, obviously, I hadn't even thought about any of these things. It obviously made a difference to the Spirit of God because they were coming up. And the issue was, are you willing to correct that which was twisted? That which was maligned or perverted, are you willing to walk in truth now and set it straight? If you stole $50, are you willing to return the 50 plus interest? I'm willing, God. So I went through this process, and it was just a deep house cleaning process in my life. Not easy, by the way. I'm not going to try and sell this off on you as easy, and I'm also not telling you to do it. Saying this is what I went through. It's up to your relationship with the Spirit of God yourself and how you respond to this message. I remember sleeping one night and I had a dream. It was right in the same time. And I had a dream of this one girl from back in junior high whose name was Jennifer. And she was, she had cerebral palsy. She went to school either in a wheelchair or sometimes she would walk uh, in uh, with, uh, 
can't even think of what those things are called, crutches, but they're like special crutches which go all the way to the elbow. And she had a nurse with her. And that girl, Jennifer, was the brunt of some of the most wicked and defiled comedic acts of these young punks that were my buddies. And here's the sad thing. I didn't do anything. You know, I had a certain level of compassion, but I wasn't about to risk my reputation to show it. And one particular time was in my mind, and I remember I could not get this out of my mind, that the bell rang, and we, me and my buddies were out in the hall, you know, where all the lockers are, and the bell rings, and she comes out into the hall, and she's walking down the hall in front of us, and, you know, which is you know, the hoots and hollers that come from the junior high guys when Jennifer would have the guts to go somewhere without her nurse. And Jennifer was walking down the hall, and she had what I later found out was a seizure. But at the time, it was just a really funny facial expression, especially for all of us punk kids. And her face froze up and locked in an agony, and she literally fell flat down on her face on the tile. And what did I do? Well, I could blame it and say, well, it wasn't me. It was, it was my buddies. They laughed and howled and yelled and joked, and I joined them. I mean, I, hey, a reputation is a thin line in junior high. You have to protect it. Haven't you ever been there? That's my justification. In other words, in the moment when I was tested, I, was, I grew up in a Christian home. I knew right from wrong. In the moment I was tested, I chose the easier route, and I sided with the world. The nurse, I remember she ran out, and she looked at us, and she goes, how could you? How could you? And, of course, all my buddies are like, come on, Ludi, let's go. And they're laughing as they run off. Well, this scene, I mean, that happened when I was in junior high. That doesn't matter. That's way back when. And yet I couldn't get it off my soul. It was just sitting there in front of me as if God keeps sticking that girl in front of me. That's why this dream. I remember, I think in the dream, I was in church, and Jennifer turns around, her face turns around. It's like, it's Jennifer. She's like looking at me like, not how could you, but hey, I'm real. I feel. I care. (laughs) And... I wake up, and I'm like, God, I don't know what to do, though. I don't know who this girl is. I don't know where she is on planet Earth. That's a long time ago. And I could not get it off my soul. So what do I do? I call up the school, my old junior high, and I'm like, do you uh, happen to give, like, addresses or contact information for former students? No, sir, uh, that's uh, something we cannot give. I'm like, oh, no, no problem. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And I come back to God. I'm like, God, boy. I wish I could get in touch with her, but, you know, there's laws in this land, and I don't want to violate those. And So, yeah, I can't. I tried. I tried. And basically the concept is, Eric, if you gave that much effort for the things you do care about, uh, you would be pathetic in this life. You would never succeed at anything. Are you willing to show that you do care by giving the level of, of emphasis and initiative in this that would honor me? Show your love to me by going after this situation. And so guess what? Eric had to buckle down and go on a search. Now, it turns out that this girl lived right down the road from the old school. Right down the road. She'd always lived there. 
and I found her phone number. I got her phone number. I don't remember how it worked, but I got her phone number. Now, this is an awkward moment. So, I mean, I'm a guy calling this girl from junior high, and I'm thinking, she's not going to know who I am, number one, but, all right, I'm going to do it. So, I I get on the phone, and uh, her, I think it was her mom that answered, hello. Hi, uh, ma'am, this is Eric Ludi. I was a friend of Jennifer's uh, from uh, junior high. Might have been a little bit of a stretch of a statement there. Uh, She's like, oh, really? Uh, And I I just was wanting to know if my sister, my sister was walking through, my sister and I could, like, come down and uh, visit her. My sister's like, what? Uh, uh, and, And so I remember Jennifer got on the phone. He's like, oh. I'm like, Hi, Jennifer, um, my name's Eric Ludi. I went to school with you. Oh, yeah. I don't know if she really did remember me, but she acted like she did. And I said, I, I was just wondering, you know, I was just thinking about you. I just wondering if my sister and I could come down and maybe uh, take you out to lunch or something. So, oh, okay. She was so excited about it. So excited. Her mom was excited. No one ever reached out like this to Jennifer. And so this was like a huge thing. And I drug my sister into this. We drove down to the Colorado Springs area and showed up at Jennifer's. And it was extremely awkward for me, by the way. Because all I'd been is rude to this girl. And now it's like, how do I do this? I felt like if I'm going to enunciate what I felt like God was asking of me, it was to be Jesus the way I wasn't Jesus before. In other words, sometimes we're supposed to come up to someone and say, Look, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? But there's other things that it's not necessarily appropriate to draw attention to. For instance, look, I've been passing around the fact, or I've been thinking, this is a classic one, I've been thinking to myself, you really stink. And I just want to say I'm sorry for for judging you because you stink and you don't take showers. You know, there's a time and a place for confrontation. There's a time and a place for seeking forgiveness. That's not the proper way of doing it because if in the process of clearing your own conscience you bludgeon someone else and show disregard and unlove towards them. You know, we're not really accomplishing much here. And so how do I do this? Yeah, uh, Jennifer, I, I laughed at you because you, you know, you were not like me and I wanted to be cool and so I made fun of you. How do I do this? I don't want to poke at her insecurities from all those past years. How do I do this, God? So I'm sitting at the lunch with her. We had, you know, a, a nice time and I remember at the very end of the lunch, she said, go to school? I knew what she said, actually. See, the school was right down the road that we used to go to, and she wanted to go to the school. I'm thinking, no way am I going to go to that school. I mean, some of my worst memories were in that school. I don't want to darken that hallway ever again. And uh, so I was like, oh, you want more potato chips? (laughs) He goes, go go to school? I'm like, mustard? uh, And my sister looks at me and she says, she wants to go to the school, Eric. (laughs) I go, oh, oh, sure, sure. I remember going into that school. She was in the wheelchair and we were pushing her. And walking into the school was the most interesting thing. Everyone knew her. And they all, all the teachers crowded around. Oh, Jennifer, she's a hero. She's a hero in that school system. She boldly and audaciously risked the mockery of all that was around her to stand up and give her best. And she graduated, I guess. She did it. 
She overcame. So the teachers there love her. And so we come in. I remember this one uh, PE teacher that came out. I knew who he was. That was Mr. Harper. And yet he had no clue who I was. He knew Jennifer. Had no clue who Eric Ludi was. What's your name again? Yeah, it's Eric Ludi. Mm, yeah, I have a lot of students that come through. Thank you. Uh, and I remember she wanted to go down the hall to see her favorite teacher, which ironically was my favorite teacher too. And we're going down the hall. And this is really awkward for me. But as we're going down the empty tile hallway, the bell rings. I mean, no worse thing to happen in a junior high when you're walking down the hall than to have the bell ring. So, I mean, I tense up with that old feeling of junior high, and all the kids start flooding out. And God shows me where I'm standing. I'm standing with Jennifer in the very spot where I mocked her all those years before. That's how God redeems something that has been twisted if we allow him to. The question is, are we going to do this with God? Or are we going to hole up and say and have our justifications and our reasons why he doesn't need to touch those areas? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. When we come before God and we allow him to test us, we allow him to inspect us, and we literally just relinquish, and we become that broken vessel that we say, God, you fix this. You build this. You make it strong. We're not strong in ourselves. We're strong in him. But there's oftentimes that need. I shouldn't say oftentimes. There's always that need for us to, first of all, become the tenderized soil that can receive the seed as opposed to the hardened soil. When the seed lands on it, it gets choked off. God's interested in dealing with the soil of our hearts. And so here we are. If God's wanting us to start this semester with a message like this, I have no idea where he's going to take us this semester. But he's interested in soil that can receive the seed. You're going to get seed, seed that maybe you didn't even know existed. And it's power. It's life and life abundant and full of glory. But you could be at Ellerslie, and if you have hardened soil, it doesn't matter. You don't get it. You could have been around Jesus. Jesus! You could have literally seen Jesus, heard Jesus talk, watched him perform his miracles, and still be hard. There is a need for God to soften. It's a work of grace. However, our role, if we're going to say it this way, is to say yes. Our role is to say, do your thing, God. Do what you must. Oh, the four lies. I don't like this story. Some Ellerslie students have probably heard various pieces of these stories. My dad, his motivation method for me when I was growing up was to not fully compliment me, but to keep encouraging me. It's sort of like the carrot dangling. And so I would finish up a soccer game, and I could have a hat trick, three goals. It could be my best game I've ever played. And all I cared about was my dad's opinion of it. That's all I cared. So I'd literally run over to the sideline and look up at my dad's face. I didn't care what the coach thought. I didn't care what the fans thought. I didn't care what my teammates thought. What does my dad think? And my dad's technique, which, by the way, this is how his dad raised him. And he's a hard-working guy as a result. So my dad, you know, we have a tendency to do what our parents did for us. That's what my dad was doing. It's like, well, that worked for me. And so he's given it to me. This is what my dad said. He always would say this. You're getting there. You're getting there. I was never there. 
I was always incomplete. It doesn't matter what I did, I wasn't there. And so as a result, something began in my life, which I'm not proud to acknowledge, but I'm just going to boldly proclaim it here because that's old Eric. I was an exaggerator. And I would take whatever was real about my life, and because it wasn't there, I would add to it. I would improve upon it. Which this is going to seem completely ridiculous, but all sin is ridiculous. <laughs> no matter how you cut it, it's stupidity at the highest levels. Yeah, I choose to go to hell and suffer for all eternity. I mean, who does this intellectually? Why would we ever do this? The way we behave is pathetic. That's why we need a rescuer. So, yeah, Eric was pathetic. I had a reverse eating disorder. In other words, I would eat and eat and eat. I would eat around five to seven plates of food a night at college. And then I would go to uh, Zip's hamburger stand and get their five cheeseburger deal for $5. And I would still have more room. My dad's reputation at college was that he was the garbage pail, and I vowed to follow in his footsteps. Basically, a garbage pail means if someone can't eat it on their plate, you take it instead of them throwing it out. And I could not get full. And when I would look in the mirror, I'd see skin and bones. It was a reverse eating disorder. I was skinny. I had a skinny complex, as opposed to, you know, what most people are dealing with is, oh, I'm so fat. Well, I was, oh, I'm so skinny. And I weighed about 25 pounds more than I weigh now. Oh, I don't even want to think about what I would look like now to myself. Not pondering that. That thought didn't enter in. No. Uh, <laughs> so here's the four lies. I was, I was in missionary school at the time, and I was allowing God to search me and try me. I mean, I was just, I'm, I was going through exactly what you're going to be going through. And it's, it's challenging. It really is. But, oh, it's so good. With every step of allowing God to move deeper in, you grow closer to him. It's beautiful, but it's not easy. So I remember laying in my bunk, and at this missionary school, by the way, you can't complain about our bunk system here after, if you saw what I lived in in missionary school. We had like five bunks stacked. Talk about efficiency of space. And so I was on like the third bunk up, and I had a piece of plywood like right above me. The worst thing is one, one night uh, I had a soccer dream, you know, where you're going around and poof. And I remember I was like, oh, oh. Uh, so those bunks can kill you. Uh, but I remember I was, it was an afternoon and I was just laying there trying to pray. It's very hard to find those spots to pray when you have so many people on campus and you have a five bunk system. Uh, and it's not like I could kneel on the floor and put my face in my bunk. It's three bunks up, you know. So I'm laying there with a piece of plywood over my face and I'm praying. God, search me. Try me. If there's anything in me that needs to be corrected, show it to me. Uh, He showed me. And my immediate response was, well, God, those aren't lies. Those are exaggerations. Uh, What do you think God said back to that? Eric, that's a lie. It's not true. That's a lie. And so there was just just this weight upon my soul of recognizing there were four different lies I had perpetrated and told to different guys in my missionary training. It's like, you've got to be kidding, God. You see, there were some funny people in my missionary training, by the way. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to say the same about this group, but uh, we had had, uh, some guys that had just gotten out of prison. We had uh, some ex-drug dealer uh, in there. We had a guy who just got out of the insane asylum that was there. I was the normal guy. 
Okay, I came from a normal background, grew up in suburbia, went to normal college. I was normal. And so I didn't want them to think that I had problems like they had. I was all put together. I didn't want to be the weak one. They're the weak one. What do you think God was doing in me? He had to break me to rebuild me. And to break us, he has to put his finger on our pathetic behavior. We're not all that. He is. And so he must bring us low so that he can build us up. So I remember the next day I was sitting in the front row and I knew what I needed to do. The class finishes and everyone's sort of rustling around and I raise my hand and I, uh, um, yes, Eric? Uh, I, I need to say something. Oh, painful. You're never attacked like you are right before you confess something, right before you make something right. I mean, you literally, your tongue doesn't work in your mouth. I mean, it just doesn't work the same. And I remember standing up trembling. I'm the strong one here. They have respect for me. I'm the only one with a normal background. It's like, oh, if we could just be like Eric. Oh, if I could have been raised like you were, I wouldn't have gone and become so weird. Now, Eric is trembling, recognizing the fact that I need to show that we're all in the same boat. We're all built of the same stuff. I just cover mine better. So I remember I had to speak four specific things out. This is so ridiculous. Uh, Mark, I don't really weigh. I actually weigh. I mean, it was so humiliating. It was like 10 pounds lighter. Uh, Tim, I don't actually bench press. I can't believe I'm going to say this. I really bench press. And everyone in the room is looking at me like, what in the world? I have never felt so naked, so vulnerable, because I was exposing who I really was. And who I really was wasn't there. It wasn't complete. It wasn't enough. Uh, Chad, I didn't run the 40 in. It was really... And the last one, I don't remember what the guy's name was, but I remember... Oh, Donnie. Donnie, I didn't run the 400 uh, in such and such. It was really... And it felt so bad, so low. I was who I really was. This is what you get, guys. I'm not all that impressive, am I? I remember these four guys got up. They all just stood up, walked up to the front, wrapped their arms around me. And I remember one of them said, Eric, we love you just the way you are. And I sobbed like a baby. Have you ever had it where your face does contortions? I had tears like spurting out of my eyes. I was, God brought me to that lowest place where I had no more coolness left in me. I was just a blubbering idiot in front of all of them. Think what you will. But I've never felt so alive and so free. You know when God restores things that have been distorted and perverted in your past and he brings about a redemption, you literally taste heaven. You do. And you're like, I never want to lose this taste. It is that good. However, the enemy will put up every cloud bank he can to get you from taking those steps. No, you don't want to do that. What about your reputation? What will they think? I mean, they may kick you out of here. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't kick out its body members when they are weak and they confess their sins. It's that simple. We actually honor and show respect because we know how valiant 
It is. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, says this holy God, with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. Who does he live with? Who joins him in his heavenly place? Those who have a contrite and humble spirit. I tell you what, there's no better place to live than in that heavenly place. And we'll talk about that this semester. You live down here in an earthly body, but technically... You're stationed, seated, and living in a heavenly place. But this is who lives there. With him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The older brother pride. I, I grew up in the typical system where an older brother, I mean, you have to keep your edge there's a need for an older brother to make one thing very clear, and that is that his younger brother is a dirt ball. <laughs> if you ever look at the laws of brotherhood, that's right at the top. Okay? Make sure this is always clear. Because if your brother ever gets a big head and thinks that he's something special, what's a big brother supposed to do? Take out that little pin and go, pop! <laughs> I had done that my entire older brother life with my brother. He's two and a half years younger than me. And here's the issue that I faced. He looks older than me, and he always did. And you could say, even when he was, uh, you know, first born and you were two and a half? Okay, maybe not then. <laughs> but I tell you what, he was always like either a fraction of an inch shorter or just like edging close. Like, come on, what, slow down. And then I'm built, I wanted to play football. And so I, I told my mom I wanted to play football, and she told me that I was, <clears throat> Eric, you're built more like a golfer. So I was built, I was built like a golfer. Well, guess the build of my brother. See, I have two granddads. One is built like a golfer, and the other one's built like a defensive end. He's just this massive farmer, big, huge biceps, big, huge hulking guy. Well, what did I get dealt out in the DNA pool? I got the golfer. And my brother inherits... So not only does he look older than me, he he can grow a beard. I can't. You see some problems here. I'm being set up for tension in my life. God, you should have thought this through. So I am a very competitive guy. And my brother posed some great challenges for me because he's a good athlete too. But I could not lose to my brother, ever. All growing up, if I ever lost to my brother, I mean, you might as well, you know, it's over. It's done. I cannot show my face in society ever again. We could be playing basketball. And if it's close, and if he's about to go up for the winning basket, I would literally probably cut out his legs from under him. I would go to such extreme measures to make sure he didn't get that basket in. I couldn't face the next day. Could you imagine what my brother would be saying? I beat Eric. No, that is not about to happen. Okay, so this is, there's a tension that has grown up in our life. I have never complimented my brother in his entire growing up life. He already thinks too big of himself anyways. There's no way I'm adding on top of that. And everyone's always, we'd always have these situations where I'd be standing next to him. And then someone would come up and they'd say, who's older? Oh, I'm like... I am. Can't you tell by the maturity? You know, I would always, it's just ridiculous. 
But my brother loved to play that. It's like, so who do you think is older, me or my brother? <laughs> oh. And so on Christmas, we had a tradition. And the tradition was, when you give a gift, a Ludi member gives another Ludi member a gift, then even if it's a bad gift, you have to act like you like it. That's part of the rules. And then you get up and you give a hug. Okay? The hug is part and parcel of Ludi lore. That's what you do on Christmas. Okay? You have to do that, otherwise you're not part of the family. So here's the challenge we were facing. What if my brother gives me a gift? What if I give my, a gift to my brother? You're not going to see me caught dead with my arms draped around my brother. And so this was a little tension point because all growing up, we had to develop our own system for this. What's interesting is my brother always gave me the best gifts. He just knew me. He, like, knew what I would want. So I did like the gifts. Oh, it's cool. Thanks. Thanks. And then the family sort of leans in. Tradition. So my brother and I get up. We walked to the middle of the room, and we invented our own way of handling this. We called it the bump. I got my elbow out. I was like, thanks. <laughs> Go back and sit down. All right, now all of this is built up over the years. I go off to college, and I come back for a break. Now, when I left for college, my mom took my room and turned it into, like, some flowery-smelling room, and there's a guest room now, and I lost my place. And so when I came home, my grandma was coming into town, and so she gets the guest room. I'm totally displaced. I'm like, where am I going to sleep? Well, guess where I get to sleep? In my brother's room. Okay, now... To give you a little background, I had just radically given my life to Jesus probably about six months to a year before this. I am a new man in every regard. People on campus are hearing Jesus in everything I'm doing. I'm leading a prayer revival group on campus for our college. I am all in. I'm giving my life completely to Jesus in every situation. I'm saying, search me, try me, test me. And what happens when I come home? I come home... I'm like, hey, that's my shirt. You dug in my closet. You get that off right now and stick it back where it belongs. What's for dinner tonight? Oh, meatloaf. I hate meatloaf. Hey, I was watching that. Turn it back. And you could say, now, Eric, you were saying you were changed? This is the interesting thing. I was changed everywhere but in my home. I don't know how that worked. But to me, there was no discrepancy. That's just how you act in a home. Have you ever seen anyone not act that way in their home? That's how kids act. When they're in college, that's just how they act, isn't it? No one had ever shown me a different template. Well, God was about to. So I am stuck in my brother's room for the night. And I remember I had my stuff. There was a little cot in there. Opened the door. I always spoke to my brother with a deep, bassy voice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sleeping in here tonight. And I threw my stuff on the cot and then... Went back out with a swagger, of course. You always keep your cool in front of your brother. You never show weakness. That's one of the lists, you know, of older brother uh, rules, too. So that night, I'm in there, um, laying in my cot, and I'm praying. I'm very spiritual right now, by the way. I could not see the discrepancy in my life that the way I was treating my brother actually was contradictory to my Christianity. The way I was treating my mother was contradictory to my Christianity. I couldn't see it. And so I'm laying there in my cot, and I remember staring up at the light on the ceiling that my brother had on so he could read. And I'm a little frustrated. It's like, look, 
I'd like to go to sleep, but the light's on. And he says, I'm reading. All right, I'm going to have a good attitude. See my Christianity? I am going to let that one go. So I am like being long-suffering for my brother, and I'm being really Christian about it. And so I'm praying, and I, I decide that it's time for a bold maneuver spiritually. I should have thought this one through. But I decide it's a bold maneuver time. And so I'm looking up at this light, and I say, God... If there is anything in me that is wrong, anything in me that needs to be corrected, you search me. God, I want to be like you. Whatever it takes, make me like you. I mean, you could, you could have, you know, if you're in this situation, like, Eric, pause, think before you make that prayer. Don't you recognize that there is a major discrepancy in your life and God's going to get all over that one. Couldn't see it, didn't see it coming. And suddenly, I have a, complete realization that when I need to love and to serve and to respect and to give up my life, that starts with my family. That's like I could just see it all of a sudden. I just see it. I had a conviction in my soul. And that's what conviction is. It's literally when fog banks are blown away and you see reality. And all I could see is the harshness, the years of ridicule, the demeaning voice The contempt I had for him. The fact that I never helped him. All I did was harm him. It's all coming cascading over me. And I'm a Christian man. I'm an example at college where people are saying, oh, we need more Eric Ludis. Boy, what what hope we have in this generation with men like Eric Ludi rising up. Yeah, and I'm pathetic. And God had to deal with that root. You ever had it where you know what God wants you to do, but you can't do it? God, no. No, I know what I just prayed, but there is one thing I cannot do. What was that one thing? I cannot humble myself before my brother. You can ask me anything. I will be cut into a thousand pieces tonight, gladly in exchange for that. I cannot do that. I cannot humble myself. I call it the blowfish feeling. When you, the conviction of God is upon you and you're not obeying, it's like there's this expansion. Something's like into you. And you're, like, Whoa! and you're like either going to burst or you have another choice. You could harden. And to harden in this situation would be to run out of that room. I knew what I could do. My options were plain before me. Eric, you either allow me to lead you through this process and obey or you harden. Do you want it or not? Do you want me or not? Oh, it was hard. This is how it comes out. Remember, I already, always had the deep bassy voice. This is how it came out. Marky? <laughs> I remember thinking, God, what, come on. Don't strip me of everything all at once. And my brother's on his bed reading. He's like, yeah. <sighs> Marky, I've been a horrible older brother to you. I've never spoke a kind word. I've never encouraged you. I've never helped you. I've always only hindered you. I've always only defeated you with my life. I started crying about this time, which was the icing on the cake for me. And as I started crying, you know what happened to my brother? He started crying. You know that there isn't a younger brother out there that doesn't dream of such a day. They just have a complete incredulity to the fact that their older brother would ever humble themselves. My brother starts crying, I start crying. And I say, Marky, I want to be your best friend. I, 
I want to help you in life. I want to lead you to Jesus. I don't want to be the impediment. And I'm crying. I'm, you know, blubbering my way through it. We had never prayed together in our entire life. And just the two of us. Like around the dinner table, yeah. But that's not like the two of us. This is just the two brothers. And we prayed together for the first time. And I tell you what. I don't know up to that point, and it's even hard to measure since, literally one of the most extraordinary prayer times I've ever had in my life. It's like it must be so unusual in heaven to have two brothers pray together that God just literally dumped out everything he had on it. It was extraordinary. It was heaven. At the very end, God asked me to do one more thing. And I remember even my discussion with God. I was like, no way. I've done all this so far. God, don't push this, please. So I turned to my brother there's, there's one more thing. He looks at me with a quavering voice. He goes, I know. <laughs> I remember we both stood up. It's like this ceremonious thing. It was about, the most awkward hug ever in the history of the world was that hug. Because it's sort of like, you know, this type of a thing. But we hugged each other. On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. The humble father. This can be from a different angle. I'm 23 years old at this time. And my dad, our, my sister, my brother and I had all decided when we were on the mission field together. My brother actually went on the mission field with me from this point. We became best of friends. It was the most extraordinary tale of redemption. And... Meanwhile, my dad is working in the business world, and he's one of those good classic elders of the church, high character, high integrity, great work ethic, but his life isn't about Jesus. His life's about work and provision. That's just what he was trained to do. That's his version of Christianity that he grew up in. And so the three of us decide that we're going to have Operation Daddy. We're going to begin to pray for our dad, and we're going to do whatever it takes. We all returned home to serve my dad. My dad at that time had some debt, and we had all this stock from one of our uncles, and we all took our stock, and we sold it to deal with my dad's debt. My dad is literally having his feet washed by his children. My dad is completely overcome by the grace of God, and my dad radically yields up his life to Jesus Christ. I don't remember how old he was. He was like 55 at the time. Amazing. My dad's story is amazing. In this time, my dad recognizes that there's things in his past that he has not handled correctly. That the way he raised us as children, he didn't do it right. This is what happens when you walk into the light. It's like most of us are like, well, I want to be good with God, but I don't know that I want to walk into that light. Because when you walk into that light, you recognize how life is supposed to be. And you can't help but being contrasted with that. And your life hasn't been as it was supposed to be. And there's a lot of people that we've hurt. So my dad went through the same exact process that I'm describing. I remember, oh, let's go back, uh, oh, maybe a year before I was 23. So I'm like 22. My dad is just in his beginning to awaken phase. He hasn't fully uh, given over his life in, that, in the classic sense. Uh, a good Christian, but not yet necessarily the fully surrendered one. And it was after church one day, and I was standing in the back with my dad. And my dad had 
hadn't said he loved me since I was maybe 10 or 11. The words, I love you. He used to always say them. Every night before I'd go to bed, he'd say, I love you. And then he'd kiss me on the lips. Well, when I got to be about 10 or 11, and I'm comparing notes with my buddies, you know, I don't know if it was one of my buddies, and said, your dad kisses you on the lips? <laughs> but no, no, he doesn't. <laughs> so whatever happened, I began to push my dad away. I was like, hey, no, no, I'm not going to do that. See, I loved my dad. My dad and I have always you know, had a great relationship in the general sense. But there was a breach in the intimate sense. And my dad didn't know how to reach me. It was sort of awkward because I was pushing him away because I wanted a normal relationship. I wanted a, the relationship my, bro, my, my friends at school had with their dads. You know, I, I don't know that I, I want to look weak. I don't, I, I, this closeness where a dad and a son are actually chummy together, I, I don't know about that. We need to keep our cool here. I, that was happening from a young age for me. And I began to push my dad away, but what's weird is that I longed for my dad to be near. And I longed for intimacy. I longed for words of affirmation. I wanted him to say, I love you to me. It's like, I know he loves me, but it's like I wanted him to say it. So I'm in the back of the church, and I remember saying, this is one of the most awkward moments in my life. Okay? That's, this is a whole collection of awkward moments. So I know I've said that a lot, but that's what this whole story is, the sequence is. It's being willing to be obedient when it's hard. I say to my dad, um, could you tell me that you love me? Okay, in all fairness to my poor dad, can you get a more awkward situation? If any of you are married in here and your wife ever comes up to you and says, could you do something romantic for me? You've never been so unromantic in your life as you are the next hour. You cannot think of anything, and all you're thinking is, if I do something now, she's going to say, yeah, that's because you asked me to do it. And so it paralyzes you. Okay, that's the way my dad felt. He's like, he couldn't say anything. My dad could not say anything when I asked him. So now we have this awkwardness in our relationship to boot. So I remember I was out in Idaho visiting my grandparents, and I get a call. And someone handed me the phone and says, it's your dad. Okay. Get on the phone, and my dad says this. Eric, uh, I love you. I tell you what, one of the most powerful things is obedience. Who, I mean, come on, do those words mean that much? There's something about obedience. When my dad yielded and he said, God, whatever I need to do, no matter how uncomfortable it is, I'm going to do it. He made a phone call to say the words. Of course, I was having a tough time knowing how to respond. I was, I was in the opposite situation then. It's like, oh, thank, thank you. You know, fumble the phone. It's like, what do you do now? What do you say as the follow-up to that? I come home. My dad has spent, I don't know, one or two days in our study. And we had a computer in there and one of those dot matrix printers. My dad isn't a typer. And so he's like, boonk, boonk, boonk. And he emerges like two days later with a sheet of paper. And he invited me into his bedroom where he had four chairs set up. He had a chair for my mom. He had a chair for himself. He had a chair for me. And he had a chair for a box of Kleenex. I'd never seen my dad cry in my entire life. When my dad, my dad's a very sensitive man, but he couldn't cry. It's like something got locked inside of him when he was young. And so when he would watch a sad movie or something, he would sound like Darth Vader. He'd be like, oh, oh, 
And we'd always stop the movie and look at, you know, look at daddy, look at daddy. And he's like, rrr, rrr, rrr. Uh, he had emotion, but he couldn't express it. So there was no tears. There was just volume. There was just breathing. You know, it was weird. And so we always joked about that growing up. I didn't understand what it was. But the same thing, ironically, was beginning to happen in me. I couldn't feel anything. I wanted to be a man, but I didn't have that pattern of a man who can feel, but he's not ruled by his emotions. I'd never seen this. I didn't understand what it looked like. And so my dad has a box of Kleenex, a whole chair dedicated to it. And he has his piece of paper. And he says, Eric, I typed this down because I don't want anything to not be said. But there's things I need to make right. And he started reading. Eric, my son, I love you. He starts crying. And he continues, and he's talking about the fact that he hasn't always been there for me. There were moments in my life when I needed a father present. Not just a father providing, a father present in my life. And he hadn't been there for me. And he sought forgiveness from me in this letter as we were reading through it. And then he starts speaking to me and to my soul. Eric, you are built to communicate. I didn't speak to anyone. He says, you're built to communicate. He actually said these words. This is the quote I remember. Your lips are our lives. He knew. A father knew his son. But because of the barricade of the lack of intimacy that the enemy had begun to build, I couldn't hear those words to be freed, to be emboldened into my mission, into my calling. One of the reasons I'm a strong man is because of my father. Now, granted, I'm also a very strong man because of my wife. But there is a great strength that comes from a father who's willing to make things right in his life. I was 23 when my dad got back on the horse. And he said, I may have wasted my first 55 years, but I'm telling you what, I'm going out in a blaze of glory. I don't care if you have to look back at your life. When you open up and you get the bright, hot searchlight and it shows you that all you've done is waste the first portion of your life. What does that mean? That means you repent, you make things right, and you say every day that I have remaining is going to be spent correctly for the glory of my king. And if there are things that need to be made right, this is the hour. This is the time. When you remove those impediments, heaven flows in. Some of you have been darkened. You live in a dark, depressing corner. Even though your world has light around it, inside there's darkness. And it's not because you esteem darkness. You actually don't want it, but you don't know how to get out. You know what a lot of that darkness comes from? It comes from unforgiveness. It's one of the leading causes of darkness and heaviness of soul. When you get that weight, we could call it the dead heart, the heart that no longer feels. It beats, but it doesn't feel. Oftentimes, the number one reason for that is unforgiveness, which is allowed in the root of bitterness and resentment. And as a result, it's choking off life within you. Intimacy, anything, when you have been asked by God to do something and yet you deliberately said no, there is a blockade, there's a hindrance between you and intimacy with your God. It's like the equivalent of your mom asking you to do something and you snub your nose at her and you say no and you walk out of the house. Well, guess what? You have to make that right to live well in that house, to be at peace in that house. It's the same with God. 
In other words, you can't treat God as if he doesn't exist. You can't treat God as if the things that you do have no impact upon relationship. They do. If I come up to anyone in my life and punch them in the nose, I can't just come up to them 10 minutes later and, you know, put my arm around them and start talking about the football game and act all normal about it. I have violated intimacy. I violated relationship. And as a result, we are responsible, the violators, to make things right. I had an organization that I was working with when we were first married and first entering into ministry that had a lot of issues. And they offended me at many turns. They took advantage of Leslie and I at many turns. And they falsely represented numbers and... It was very difficult for us. But I, you know, my desire was, okay, I'm going to love, I'm going to serve. But there was a little grievance, I had to admit. It was, it was lingering. And I remember they asked me to speak at some big conference. And I got up to speak about, it was like forgiveness or reconciliation. That's what I was speaking on. But before I had freedom to speak, I had to take the entire staff off to the side and confess that I had not been Christ to them in all my words spoken, in all my letters written, that there had been a curtness at times, there had been an irritation and frustration at times. Now, what am I hoping comes back? I'm hoping that they break down before me and say, Eric, we've been the problem. We're the ones that really have been the issue. The reason you're even having problem being curt is because we have done yada, 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 yada. However, guess what? They don't say anything. You're issue is not their issue. Your obedience does not hinge upon if they say, oh, I'm sorry for what I did. That makes no difference. In fact, you might as well just prepare yourself right now. No one in this world that you come to and seek forgiveness may respond and reciprocate and say, look, I've done some things to you that probably hurt you. If you go to your parents, they may not see yet what they have done to you. They may not see it. That's not your issue. Your issue is this. You're responsible for your soul. I can tell you the power when a father stands up. I can share that. But in these stories, I'm responsible for the ones that are on my docket. When someone else begins to deal with their docket, it changes everyone around them. And it's a beautiful thing. But you're responsible this day for that which God is pointing out inside of you. It's funny, but without even knowing, most of you, without ever having even a conversation with many of you in this room because it's a new semester arriving. I know that God is probably sticking his finger on very specific things in your soul, saying, would you allow me to help you with this? Would you allow me to lift this out of your life so that we can walk together without impediment, without hindrance? My encouragement for you is your answer is yes. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you're like, I can't say it though. I can't say it. It's funny. Sometimes you can say every word but the right word, which is yes. And you can say, but I can't say it. That's too hard of a word to say. It's just Y-E-S. It's not that hard. No, it is hard. Because there's an obstruction in your soul. There's a concern in your soul. And we will teach you, disciple you, what that obstruction is. And you'll be very well educated by the time you leave here on what is hindering you. What's causing that fear and that anxiety, that trepidation, that foreboding of, oh, well, this might happen. Oh, well, this might happen. I can tell you what will happen if you obey Jesus more of Jesus. You'll find more of Jesus, and that's heaven. That's life. That's life abundant and full of glory. There's never a downside to obedience. Never. 
there's always an increase of Jesus Christ. So as we close, I would like us to consecrate ourselves. It means to set apart ourselves unto our God. Very specifically, I would like us to open. Open up our lives into the cross posture to basically say, all this you have. Anything in here, anything in this arena that needs to be corrected, made right, cleansed, you have access, Lord Jesus. No matter what comes with it, no matter how difficult it may be, you have access. At times, it's needful that you follow through on this as soon as possible. In other words, if there is someone back home that you need to make something right with, just deal with it. Don't delay. And if you have impediment in the process of making it right, oh, we don't give out those phone numbers, that's uh, classified information. Be diligent in doing this unto your Lord. Let's make things right in our life. Let's be God's vessels through which he can pour forth his grace and his glory unto this generation in which we live. Let's not be the cause of problem. Let's be the flow-through channel through which the solution can come. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.